It doesn't take a business guru to know it's good for any organization from time to time to look back on their foundation to remember why they were created and what their goals are. It can be a helpful exercise in determining whether they are still prioritizing what was initially valued or whether they have drifted slightly from that for whatever reason. All healthy organizations will do this from time to time. Sometimes circumstances, either internal or external, force that kind of evaluation and assessment on an organization. COVID-19 has certainly forced churches to rethink what we are about and how we seek to accomplish our mission and goals. This is one reason why I'm thrilled we're in a series of the Book of Acts this fall. Because Acts tells the story of God building his church. Acts is the record of our very foundation as a community of faith. If we wanna know how the church started out, this is the book to read. It picks up the story of Jesus after his life, death, and resurrection. In fact, the book begins with Jesus ascending to heaven, charging his followers with this important task. You will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The section we're in right now describes the Apostle Paul's debut, his first missionary journey or road trip known throughout the world, throughout the known world to spread this message of Jesus. And it is both comforting and convicting to read because what we see Paul doing as he opens new franchises or starts little communities of faith in all these cities gives us insight into how we are to be the church today in Minneapolis in 2020. I wanna make three observations about how the early church did it, what our founders did. And after each one, we'll look at what that means for us. Observation number one, the early church leaders boldly summoned people to a whole new way of life. Verse three, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time in Iconium speaking boldly for the Lord. We see more of the content of that boldness when, due to a plot on their lives, they flee to the nearby town of Lystra. Now, Lystra is where the crowd mistakes Paul and Barnabas for being the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, which sounds a bit superstitious to us, but actually makes sense when you know their story. Local legend maintained, and we have writings recorded 50 years prior to this incident in the first century, that the gods Zeus and Hermes had visited this small town disguised as mere human beings. They sought hospitality, but no one provided it except one elderly couple. So the whole town minus that couple were destroyed in a flood. So just imagine if that's your local legend in your pagan town that worships Zeus and two guys come in and heal a man who was lame from birth, you're thinking, we're not gonna make that mistake again. Verse 11 says the people shout, the gods have come down to us in human form. In the Lyconian language, not the Greek, which Paul and Barnabas speak. So they have no idea what's happening here. Maybe you've had an awkward cultural moment where someone 
with someone who speaks a different language than you and you think you're on the same page only to realize you're really not. That's how Paul and Barnabas feel in verse 13 when they realize these bulls are being marched in for them. Using some strong sign language of their own, Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes. This was how Jewish people communicated horror in the face of perceived blasphemy. Paul then backs it up with words, hoping enough will get through or someone can translate. Why are you doing this? We are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Then he goes on to say how creation itself testifies to God's goodness, provision, and creativity. Do you see how Paul just goes for it here? He doesn't just say, we're not actually the ones who healed, it's God. He goes further and calls into question the very foundations their town is built on, the worship of Zeus. Paul says, good news, turn from these worthless things, these lifeless imitation gods to the one true living God. No soft pedaling, no watering down. And while I know we need to do it in socially appropriate ways, and while relationship matters, I am left to ponder my own boldness, or frankly, sometimes lack thereof. And I think for many of us, it is not a matter of courage and being bold, but a matter of being out of touch. We've forgotten or taken for granted how life-altering Jesus really is. I am not bold in sharing good news because I forget just what good a news this is. It reminds me of vaccines, actually. I'll be honest, most of the time when I took my kids for their immunizations, I did it because it was recommended. I went through the motions. I wasn't thinking about how their life would be different with a vaccine for measles or polio because I hadn't lived through those time periods and seen how severe it was. But I'll tell you what, whenever a safe vaccine endorsed by healthcare professionals for COVID-19 becomes available, whenever that may be, and I pray regularly for those dear people who are working on it, I have a feeling I'm gonna think differently about it. It will take time for that to be distributed widely enough, but I have a feeling that that appointment is not gonna feel perfunctory. I have a feeling I'll be shouting, good news, I can hug again. I can have people in my home for a meal. The sound of children laughing will once again fill our schoolyard and neighborhood. I will know deep in my being, this will impact our lives daily. Good news indeed. Friends, we need a shot in the arm. We need to be reminded from time to time just what good news we have to share. Jesus is a game changer for a marriage. Jesus is a life changer for the outcast and lonely. Jesus provides meaning and purpose in life. 
Jesus has beaten death at death's own game so that not even death can rob us of our hope. This is the message Paul could not speaking, stop speaking about. This is the reason he was so bold. Friends, we will never speak boldly about him if we lose touch with just how good a God he is. If our attentions become seduced by other worthless, lifeless rivals. Because once we are captivated by him, once we remember just what a precious treasure this is, we will be willing to do anything for it. That's the second observation. The early church leaders were willing to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Such a drastic call to change your way of life elicits dramatic responses in accepting or rejecting or sometimes even persecuting those who accept it. Paul and Barnabas nearly escape one stoning in one town only to be stoned nearly to death in the next. They're divinized one moment as Zeus and Hermes and demonize the other, beaten and stoned to near death. Verse 15, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's not that it's essential to salvation so much as it is inevitable. It's not surprising we follow Jesus, how that work out for him. But I want us to notice here that the disciples do not go looking for suffering. In fact, many times in Acts, they sneak away whenever they hear of plots on their lives. They're witnesses, not martyrs. And yes, sometimes their witness entails suffering, but that is never their goal. It's believed that one of those disciples in verse 20, who tend to Paul's body after he's beaten nearly to death, is young Timothy, who's from the town of Lystra. In 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 12, Paul tells Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I imagine seeing Paul endure suffering for Jesus in his hometown of Lystra had more impact on Timothy than a hundred sermons. Some of you are suffering for Jesus' sake. Your boss makes life difficult for you because he does not agree with your faith. Your public school teacher is anti-Christian and you pay the consequences. Your time and money is spent on priorities the world says is a waste. Your faith is misunderstood by those you love. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are we willing to endure such suffering for our allegiance to Jesus? Finally, observation three. The early church did not create converts, but established churches. Their emphasis was not on isolated individuals espousing a set of beliefs and practices. Their efforts were centered on establishing little communities of faith that would together share this new life they had found and live it out for those around them to see. 
They believed these groups of people were the literal hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ, who was no longer on this earth to carry out his work of helping the blind to see, setting the captives free, and giving hope to the hopeless. When you plot their road map, road trip on a map, you realize that when verse 21 tells us they go back through the cities they had previously visited, that's kind of a loaded sentence. Geographically, they're right at the foot of the Taurus Mountains. The shorter way back to Antioch, where they started, would be, to, would be to go through the pass of those mountains. And in fact, Paul's hometown Tarsus is right on the way. Add the fact that Paul just narrowly escaped with his life in those cities, and why wouldn't he head just directly back to Antioch? Verses 22 to 23. They returned to the cities they visited, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Then they appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Paul isn't just about launching, he's about sustaining. His goal is to see these communities help each other in this new way of life it's going to be hard at times and work together to show their neighbors just what good news this is. That takes some attention. That takes some nurturing. So he prioritizes that on this road trip. Friends, it is not enough to be connected to Christ. If you are connected to Christ, you are connected to his body, the church. Or as the early church leaders used to say, he who wants Christ as his father must have the church as his mother. No, it's not perfect. I've spent my entire career working in the church. You don't have to tell me that. But God's intent, as Paul will say in a later letter, Ephesians 3:10, is that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. So let it be. We collectively are Christ's witnesses. How we together model living through this moment and how we offer hope in this dark, anxious time has God's name on the line. And this is true even if we can't meet together in larger groups. I will be the first to admit that I miss singing at the top of our lungs in praise to our God in this space. But this is also an opportunity unlike any other. If you have, for whatever reason, become overly dependent on the church to provide all your spiritual sustenance, this is a great time to take the reins back into your own hands. Our job, the church's job, is to strengthen and encourage we supplement. We cannot take the place of. Whatever happens between you and God outside of this place, we are seeking to nurture. We're trying to be creative right now in that and provide a variety of options around that. But ultimately, you need to take responsibility for your part in that, and I hope you do. Because if you commit to doing that, 
If we commit to doing that together as one body to continue to grow during this time, being strengthened and encouraged to remain true to the faith, I believe our reunion, our first gathering in this building after all this is over, whenever that is, whatever that looks like, will be very much like Paul's sweet reunion in Antioch. Verses 26 to 28. They returned to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Oh yeah, they did. Sweet reunion, glorious homecoming. What if at our very first worship service when we gather together, after all this is over, one hour is not enough to declare all that God has done in this time. How we had seen him draw people to himself we would never have imagined had come to him. One person shares how their family relationships were saved because of COVID. Another tells how they now pray every day on their morning walk and they are experiencing such intimacy with God that they never had before. Another tells of a job they switched to that they would have never had the courage to make the change, but were they furloughed. Someone's neighbor is curious about Christianity in ways they never were before. Tell me more. Let the stories go on. City Church, if we live our lives with total devotion to Jesus Christ, willing to suffer for his sake, drawing strength and encouragement from one another, then I believe that will be the case. So let it be. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word that records what it was like when this movement got started. What it was like to have walked with Jesus and then have the opportunity to proclaim the good news available for all. Oh God, give us a shot in the arm. Give us sight. Give us the ability to see what a good gift you are. Help us to live into that reality that it would overflow into all we come in contact with, that we would rejoice and count ourselves worthy of suffering for your name, as those first disciples did. And may our church, whatever that looks like now, be a place where we are strengthened and encouraged to remain true to the faith for your sake. Amen.